You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. By some estimates, we spend a fifth of our lives watching TV or movies. That's almost 11 years of Breaking Bad, Bridgerton, and this. To put it another way, you could watch the extended version of the Lord of the Rings trilogy more than 8,000 times and still have time to make popcorn between viewings. We consume entertainment almost as habitually as we eat and sleep, activities that receive intense scrutiny and study. So why not also examine the effects that watching movies and TV have on our minds and bodies? Your body is reacting to this, whether that's how your nervous system is reacting, whether that's how the chemical reactions inside of your body are, are functioning. Your body goes on a full fundamental experience and it takes it very, very seriously. Don't move from the edge of your seat. You'll laugh, you'll cry in this feel-good, star-studded episode of Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, the physiological effects of film what exactly are those particles floating in the air in your local theater, and what happens on the screen when scientists and movie makers collaborate. This episode is Your Mind on Movies. The relief is palpable. You flop down on a couch or sink into a theater seat with the giddy prospect of tuning out the real world for a couple of hours in exchange for the story on the screen. It's a welcome break from life before the lights dim or after the credits roll. Because for all of the time that we spend in these artificial worlds, whether they're edifying documentaries or electrifying sci-fi, we still consider them escapism entertainment. Sure, they might stir emotions, but they otherwise let us hit pause on the world where real people and activities affect us in tangible, measurable ways. Except it turns out that the effects these worlds have on us can be measured too. It might surprise you how much time our eyes are spent glued to movies and television screens. The amount is up there with major daily activities. And behind, you know, working, which is one of the most popular things that many people do, not everyone, but many people do, and sleeping, which is a, a rather important necessity, uh, we devote an enormous amount of our waking hours to watching things. Not easy to juggle a pregnant wife and a troubled child, but somehow I managed to fit in eight hours of TV a day. We spend something like a fifth of our adult lives watching screens, watching things, consuming books, consuming media in all sorts of different forms. My name is Walt Hickey. I'm a data journalist, and I'm the author of You Are What You Watch. Well, in that case, if you've watched all six seasons of The Crown, you qualify to become a member of the royal court. Scientists have produced many studies about the effects that activities like eating and exercise have on us, countless studies on sleep alone, for example, what the lack of it does to you because you've stayed up to the wee hours, binging the crown. So it seems prudent to study the effects that this major slice of our time pie chart has on us too. And when we do, it makes the case that entertainment isn't mere distraction, as Walt Hickey told Seth Jostak. We see 
reliable evidence at all different levels, whether it's the individual physiological level, whether it's a sociological level, uh, whether it's a kind of a global level, an economic level, that there are significant ramifications from consuming media. Uh, these can be simple things. These can be after a film comes out that features a dog rather prominently, that dog often gets quite popular to the tune of thousands of those animals getting adopted within within a few years. But even on a, on a physical level, on an individual level, whether that's how your nervous system is reacting, whether that's how the chemical reactions inside of your body are, are functioning and, and eventually producing either waste or, or, or things within you, your body goes on a full fundamental experience and it takes it very, very seriously. Well, give me an example. Give me a specific example of how watching a movie or a series of movies has some sort of physiological effect on me. Certainly. Uh, we can dive into one of my favorite studies. There's this idea of horror movies, and, and there's this word that these researchers uh, who, who typically studied thrombosis and studied strokes and studied basically clotting within the human bloodstream, they're, they're medical scientists, they, they realized because they were you know at a retreat and there were a lot of different folks from lots of different European countries there, they realized that every one of their languages had a word for blood curdling. And they were like, well, that's rather interesting because, the, the, you know, it is peculiar that every single language has a word that basically means that, uh, you know, your blood is coagulating when you watch a, a, a given kind of film. So they essentially ran a study where they exposed people to either a jump scare filled horror movie or just a kind of a neutral documentary about. What wait, 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 wait. you got to kind of tell me what that uh, that particular term means. Jump scare. Oh, yeah. so if you ever watch a horror movie and they go boom, and like you know the the screen like scares you, and like just a, a big like you see a freakish monster that came out of nowhere, what? What? or a doorway flies open and th something comes in, the kind of thing that is just designed to evoke the most standard kind of scares. Now, this wasn't like a bloody horror movie because they didn't want to get that kind of is it about disgust? Is it about that kind of thing? They wanted to do just really spooking you, and so they ran this study and essentially what they found was that after they the subjects watched the horror film, uh, when they had sampled their blood before and after, they detected elevated levels of a coagulation factor. And a coagulation factor is, you know, the, the, the human circulatory system contains uh, a means by which to form a clot. And so what they found is that after exposure to a horror movie, the body is essentially preparing itself to bleed. It is releasing the hormones and releasing the chemicals that it would release if it anticipates being injured. And, and that's, that's presumably because your, your brain has decided while watching this film that the next thing that might happen to you is that some vampire will, you know, bite your neck. Even though your conscious mind knows that you're in a cinema, even though your conscious mind knows that, that what you're watching is on a screen, even though your conscious mind knows that you are just signing up for two hours of entertainment and you can leave at any time, you, your subconscious mind, the mind that is actually in charge of you know taking care of these systems, uh, it, it is taking this very seriously. It's perceiving it as a threat. And that's one of the reasons that you know people love horror movies. They, they, love, they love kind of riding that little roller coaster and getting that sensation that perhaps they're in danger and fooling their brain into it. Yeah, I think that that's a great thing for Hollywood writers right? Uh, you know, we, we see the situation developing on a screen, shadows on a screen, and we react to it as if it were happening in real life. I, I suppose there's survival value in that. It's a kind of a rehearsal in case you actually do run into vampires during the course of your daily routine. In your book, you also describe how things like our breath, you know, the constituents that make up the air we exhale, changes when, when we're watching a movie. Uh, they do that by using a mass spectrometer, which makes it sound like it's somehow more scientific. But it's just a device to analyze, you know, what's in your breath, that kind of thing. Tell us something about what the studies that sample the air circulating in a movie theater have, have revealed. I mean, you know, all, all I can tell is that there's this aroma of popcorn, but what did the study show? Certainly. Uh, yeah, so the study that you're referring to is done by this uh, researcher, Jonathan Williams, and he's a researcher in Germany. And a lot of his work and a lot of his laboratory's work, it, it's in the Amazon. It's in the rainforest. And what they study is basically these chemicals called volatile organic compounds. And these are, you know, hydrocarbons that you know, plants, animals, living things excrete as a waste product. When you think about uh, your body, there's lots of chemical reactions that happen in your body. A key one that we all know about is that you inhale oxygen and you exhale a slightly higher percentage of carbon dioxide than originally went in that pipe. 
what many people don't also realize is that when you exhale, you're also exhaling a lot of chemical reaction results that, that came from your body. A good example is when you lift weights and you contract muscles, a result of the chemical reaction that is a muscle cell contracting is uh, the chemical isoprene. And you need to exhale this isoprene. And so after you do a flex, if we were to measure your breath, we would see trace amounts of isoprene increase within your breath. Um, and what these researchers did is that they kind of wanted to see, you know, they, they studied so much time in the Amazon that they wanted to see what is the actual effect of a human being's breath on the world? And so they found this movie theater that was willing to have them. And so they essentially hooked up their equipment to the HVAC system of, of pulling air out. And they were essentially just measuring in real time over the course of a film the levels of these VOCs, uh, whether it was you know basic stuff like carbon dioxide or isoprene, like I just mentioned. And they found that they saw repeated spikes in different ones of these VOCs across different screenings of the same film. Tell us again, a, a VOC, it sounds like a trading uh, yeah, arm a of the British is, government. Is, is a volatile organic compound. It's, okay. it's these things that, that living things exhale. Long molecules in the theater, right. And what they found is that it, it was essentially a repeatable chemical experience. What they were finding is that isoprene spiked at the same time in the same movie across different screenings. And that makes sense, because the reason that they noticed that was because those were moments where the whole theater tensed up. And so when the whole theater tenses up, everyone's muscles contract and everyone's muscles release isoprene and everyone exhales that isoprene and then you notice it on your form. So our surprise at finding this, is that simply a reflection of the fact that, you know, everybody knows that the movies aren't a real experience, right? There's nobody really pointing a gun at you or whatever, right? And, and consequently, um, we shouldn't be surprised that we have these reactions because, you know, from the point of view of our body, we've just paid, you know, $10 to see this thing and we hope that they're going to stimulate a chemical reaction in our bodies. I mean, is there anything surprising about this? Well, I think the most surprising thing about it is that it is repeatable. Obviously, within science, you want to see repeatable outcomes of experiments. We're going to see similar signatures if we were to measure uh, the, the, the electricity on your skin, which is a way of us to kind of help us gauge your intensity of, of you know engagement, right? A metric called galvanic skin response. Uh, we will see repeatable signatures if we measure what's going on in your breath, because you're going to have the same kinds of chemical reactions happening in your body over the course of different screenings of that same film. It makes sense sense that your body engages with it because obviously even though you're consciously paying $15 to get in the door you know you're potentially suspending disbelief and allowing yourself to go for the ride yeah that's that's particularly interesting because strictly speaking you know we input movies we we take what movies are offering into our bodies with only two senses as far as i can tell you know sight and sound right they they they're not putting 10,000 volts in the seats and yet it's good enough to fool us. I love it because it is just that level of simplicity. And again, like I always ref like come writing this book and, and kind of looking at this stuff, I come away increasingly with the concept that movies are really technology. They're, they're a, a set of interlinked technologies, whether it was the availability of celluloid, whether it was the projection equipment, whether it was the dawn of sound, whether it was the dawn of photography that came together and formed this product that really just works. It is the minimum viable product for essentially tapping directly into the human nervous system. Well, before 1928, you know, the films are all silent. Did they have the same sort of effect on us? All we're getting now is something that, you know, we see with our eyes, nothing more. Well, again, you got to recall that when the, even the films were silent, there was an orchestra there, right? Or there were musicians there that, that were able to kind of take you on that emotional journey through musicality and sound. You know, and even books and, and, and I argue comics have a, have a very similar effect at times, too. They can still resonate with you in no small part. But the thing that I, I think that makes film very powerful is even I was able to talk to some people, and this was a later chapter in the book, who designed theme parks for a living. And they're kind of taking that 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 clay that we know works in, in cinema, and they're adding those other senses that you were talking about. They're blasting smells of vanilla when you walk down Main Street in Disneyland. They are potentially making your seat rumble in intensity. They're changing the 
the temperature as you walk through a line so that you are transported mentally out of Southern California and into wherever they want you mentally to be. So, you know, I, I think that your your question is very insightful because the idea is it's, it asks, you know, why not more? And the answer is there is there there are people experimenting with more and, and you can do some very, very fun stuff with it. Uh, but but in terms of film, again, it's just what makes it so compelling is that it's just such a, a transportable and consumable product that you can have you can watch a movie anywhere in the world at this point. Yeah. Well, what we talk about, uh, you know, offering more, I mean, the industry, at least the technical arm of the industry, the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers, those guys, they're forever trying to improve the movie experience. You know, you say, okay, you go to the local movie, you're going to see 24 frames per second and, you know, uh, often just a single soundtrack and stuff like that. And they try and offer more, but it doesn't seem, I mean, yes, it's okay, but it's just increase the cost of the distribution of the film, it's made everything more complicated, and people won't love the films any more than they do already. I mean, it, it just sounds like a, a minimal effort to mimic reality is good enough. It, it'll surprise you know. It's we're having this conversation in in mid December, and I just saw uh, the film The Boy and the Heron, which is a, a movie by Hayao Miyazaki, and it's traditionally animated. And the thing about traditional animation is that traditional animation goes to the very earliest forms of cinema. When we're talking about the silent films, some of the first silent films were animated films, and, and, and just kind of seeing that this technology and this illusion of basically animation and so much of film in general is just kind of taking this idea of the persistence of human vision, where where you're eye can only take in light so quickly and process it so quickly that you can only need 24 frames per second. Heck, sometimes even just 16 frames per second to get the illusion of animation, the illusion of motion. And so, I don't know, like, we're working with very primordial stuff here. We are working with, uh, they are illusions that operate on the eye and uh, in the mind and they are uh, they are very effective and we've we've had this technology for years and uh, you know I think that everybody's always trying to improve it a little bit and, and it always improves just a little bit each time sometimes brings the cost down sometimes makes it more accessible but you know you you some of the technology that we had right there in the very very beginning is still with us today and making some of the finest films that we got listen they they experimented with both color and three-dimensional films very early, you know, more than 100 years ago, they were already trying to do. But I guess it just wasn't worth the, the candle. It wasn't, it didn't improve the experience sufficiently to justify the additional complexity and the cost, right? Otherwise- The color did, but but you're not wrong. Like the, the three-dimensional element of this is definitely one that we've uh, attempted to tap into and, and haven't always succeeded with, yeah. <laughs> do any other media have similarly profound effects? I mean, you know, the 1939 broadcast of War of the Worlds with Orson Welles. That was radio. There was no, there were no visuals, and yet people were moved by that, too. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. I couldn't agree more. Again, uh, you know, the, the book is called You Are What You Watch, but it is very broadly, I would say, about the impact of stories and the impact of, of pop culture and the impact of these different things that we consume. And, you know, I think books and comics have very similar resonant qualities. I think that there are, uh, you can do things with imagery and you can do things with storytelling in those mediums that you can't necessarily accomplish in things like television and film. Uh, mainly, my argument is that there's so much that we should be thinking about when it comes to how these things affect how we see the world that I think too often is just kind of hand waved away and dismissed as just a frivolity but you know I, I'm, I'm fairly medium agnostic here I think that uh, a good story can, can really work in a lot of different formats. I recall seeing the short cinema dramas in classrooms when I was very much younger 16 millimeter films showing the signing of the Declaration of Independence for example that kind of stuff but I, I felt that if this approach really had you know a good effect that that kids knew more of history by watching these films, uh, we would have seen a lot more films, and we didn't. Uh, maybe they were just too expensive, but I, I kind of wonder, is that because the effects are only really temporary, or is it because you, know, you can't really try and uh, replace the teachers with the films? I mean, I think that you're onto something here, 
but I think it just kind of has to come down to how successful they are at reaching the kids. I mean, uh, we can talk about all those different kinds of potential features, but like, I mean, if you think about the past 10 years and the impact that Hamilton has had on people's understanding of the early American experiment, it is uh, few people were aware of Aaron Burr to the nature that they are today. Uh, Few people were as aware of some of the nature of the Federalist Papers as they are today. Uh, Sometimes you just need the right way of articulating a message in order to get it out. So, yeah, absolutely. But perhaps it wasn't the John Adams miniseries starring Paul Giamatti that was going to do the trick. Maybe you needed a, a fun Broadway musical in order to get there, you know? You'll be back soon, you'll see. you remember you belong to me. You'll be back. And we'll be back asking the question, do sci-fi filmmakers listen to the advice from their science advisors? Does it matter? This is Your Mind on Movies on Big Picture Science. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Scientists can help shape movies, although their influence may be limited, as we'll hear. But the opposite is true, too, says journalist and data scientist Walt Hickey. The everything in the title of his book, You Are What You Watch, How Movies and TV Affect Everything, includes how entertainment shapes public perception of science and scientists. For example... Ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four... Mr. Hickey tells a compelling story about how in the 1950s, it was movies that helped prepare the public for the eventuality of space travel long before NASA was created. He writes... Rocket launches didn't get Americans to believe in space travel. The media did. If you look at the success of early American rocketry and you compare it to polling on whether or not Americans genuinely think they're going to be able to get to the moon within their lifetimes, it's it's not in any way linked. You know, uh, it wasn't uh, the success that necessarily was getting people across the finish line. What really moved the needle when it comes to getting the American public to believe that perhaps a moon mission was even feasible within the next 20 years was a number of specials that Disney put together that ran on the Disneyland television program and a number of uh, specific, uh, you know, magazine features it published in Collier's, which was one of the most read periodicals at the time. Uh, that really made the case for this is feasible, it's viable, and it's going to happen soon. And this was actually kind of a deliberate strategy from from the men who wanted rocketry to be a, an American pursuit. Uh, Werner von Braun was integral in both of these projects, uh, both the Disney project, he appeared on on, on ABC, uh, uh, hyping up the possibility of, of interplanetary and outer space travel, essentially, well before we were actually even getting rockets up there. Just a personal note, I mean, Destination Moon, for which George Powell, who made a lot of these films, he was, I think, the producer on that. But in any case, it was just about, you know, a trip to the moon. That's basically what it was. But it had a huge influence on me. And, uh, you know, I later had quite a correspondence, actually, with George Powell about this. And he, he, he said, yeah, he said he was gratified to hear that his movies had actually resulted in at least one person studying space science. It is just minutes before takeoff time in the uninhabited desert of White Sands, New Mexico. But to reach this dramatic moment, were months of construction, checking every detail a thousand times, and a desperate struggle to muster up courage to challenge the black, airless void of terror-stricken space. Was the entertainment industry actively promoting the U.S. space agenda? 
So it's interesting, you know, going through the specific examples, right? So the Collier's Magazine features were a brainchild of one specific journalist who was invited essentially to a rocketry convention in New York uh, of the folks who were of, of the mindset that America ought to do more of this and was so persuaded by what he saw at this convention that he pitched his editor on a series of features. And, and then the folks that he had worked with at this convention were very enthusiastic to pitch in. And that got the attention of Disney. And, you know, I don't know how much your audience knows about Walt Disney, the person, but particularly towards the end of his life, he was very committed and interested in the future. He was very shaped by things like the World's Fairs. He was very interested in these kinds of what 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 is this country going to be and the civilization going to be. And so he was, you know, very friends with folks like Werner von Braun and, and ran in those kind of circles and essentially got very interested in the potential that space travel had and, and used this very large platform that he had to to feature it. And so I, I think that part of it was obviously the, the unique interests of some of these people. And part of it was a deliberate strategy on the part of folks who wanted the American government to fund uh, space exploration and, 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 and space travel and, and space elements of that. Well, let's follow that up a little bit by considering the role of films and television to alerting us about the importance of climate change, right? The screenwriter who wrote the film The Day After Tomorrow, it was kind of a downer of a film, but, you know, he drew on current science around sudden climate change. When the director of the Yale University program on climate change learned about the movie's release, he commissioned a study to see whether it would have an impact on the public's perception of this threat. What did he find out? Did, did it or did they just, you know, buy more popcorn and walk away? Yeah, no, uh, uh, this is a gentleman named Anthony Lazarowitz, and he does a lot of interesting research into essentially uh, public perception of climate change. And pop culture is an integral part of that, particularly recently, as especially this issue has become very resonant among lots of folks who, you know, create art. Yeah, see, it, it's a great film in the in the higher in the you know long history of, of science fiction films uh, that takes something that is you know understood to be an element of of science and then just takes it like ten steps further and fifteen times faster. It, it basically it's a disaster film that shows the ramifications of a rapid uh, shift in in the climate based on the degradation of of the Gulf Stream, and uh, you know it, you know the science is not sound as to how quickly that'll happen, but. You know the destabilization of the of the of the various different climatological systems that keep our world somewhat in the balance that we currently enjoy. That is that is a realistic scientific fact. It's just hyping it up quite a bit. We found something extraordinary, extraordinary and disturbing. That is, you recall what you said about how polar melting might disrupt the North Atlantic current. Yes. And essentially what he found was that there was a significant increase in awareness and interest and, and belief essentially in the scientific principles that yes, it's man-made, yes, it's preventable, yes, it can be done if we, you know, uh, you know, ameliorated if we were to address the carbon problems, that there was a significant increase in that those beliefs among folks who had seen that film uh, than your typical film consumer. And, you know, what his argument there that, that I find rather interesting is, is that uh, that same year you saw the release of An Inconvenient Truth, uh, a documentary film, uh, in fact, an Academy Award winning documentary film from the former vice president of the United States. But a whole lot more people saw The Day After Tomorrow than saw An Inconvenient Truth. And I think that there's a, a persuasive argument to be made that sometimes by putting your message in a pop culture medium, you can actually have a little bit more efficacy. Well, Walt, does it even matter if the science is correct? I mean, I've consulted for numerous, numerous, you know, sci-fi films, and you can go through the script and red line, line uh, things and say, okay, this is inaccurate and, you know, re suggest some replacement. But I don't know that that makes any difference to the audience, right? I mean, okay, some scientist has now gone through the script and it doesn't have these howlers uh, that many science fiction films do. But I don't know that it, that changes the overall effect of the film one iota. I mean, I, I think that you're right. I, I, I'm curious, actually, which films have you worked with? Well, there was the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still, right, where they replaced uh, Michael Rennie with uh, Keanu Reeves. Well, <laughs> that was an edifying experience. Well, actually, it wasn't edifying. That was the problem. Anyhow. But, you know, the Hollywood will say, oh, well, we want to get the science right. And in some cases, such as uh, when I was an advisor for a film, you know, they actually took steps to do that. And they would pay your airfare to fly up to wherever they were doing the shoot. 
and have you, you know, sort of make sure that all the equations on the blackboard behind the star, you know, meant something, that kind of thing. But I, I can hardly believe that that makes any difference. It's not the information content of these films that accounts for their uh, effectiveness. I got I got such a huge kick out of talking to a bunch of scientists who have been in a very similar position as you, where they had an opportunity to you know work on and consult a film, and they kind of came away with it, being like, you know, what did I really do here? Uh, it, it is at times like you know it, it does have a very interesting. There's a very cool connection, and I'll give you an example of how this stuff can flow back and forth. For instance, um, there was in in the mid to late '90s, there was an event. Uh, you may again occupationally, you actually might know this year better than I will. I want to say it was '97, the Shoemaker-Levy event, uh, where a comet crashed into Jupiter, and it was the first time that we never actually kind of captured that uh, actually on film, as it were. Yes, no, that's right. Now, is it any shock that just a few years later? inspired by the fact that a planet that we're near got hit by a comet on film, you saw Deep Impact and Armageddon come out at the same time. So you can see the the, the fingerprints of actual science kind of directly leading to pop culture. And then you can see it just the other way around too, because what films are cited when uh, NASA is asking Congress to fund the NEOWISE program, which is the Near Earth Object Detection Program, they cite Deep Impact and they cite Armageddon. What is this thing? It's an asteroid, sir. How big are we talking? Sir, our best estimate is 97.6 billion. It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. Yes, yes, sir. And so you can see that there's the this kind of fluid back and forth relationship between science and the films that, you know, it, it's nuanced and it's interesting. And, and I think everybody comes away with it, uh, like feeling like, well, did I actually improve the understanding of the public's understanding of science or what have you? Uh, and those are valid questions. But I think that at the end of the day, you know, anytime that you can get somebody more interested in the field, you're, you're doing something better, you know? Yeah, well, it's interesting you say nuance when, in fact, what you're telling Congress is fund this or else, you know, humanity might get wiped out. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, do you want to rely on oil drillers to knock out an asteroid? No. <laughs> fund us now, please. Who who would know better than the, the roughnecks on an oil rig? Uh, there's also the fact that screenwriters, of course, who are very seldom scientists, maybe never, uh, they will write a... Uh, uh, a scene where, for example, a scientist is covering a blackboard with you know, opaque equations and trying to impress the political types. Hey, look, you know, unless we take action soon and evacuate New York or whatever, it's not going to play out well, that kind of thing. And, uh, but they always, you know, they get into this sort of jargon of science to make it sound like it maybe means something, where in fact, you know, it doesn't mean anything. And I, I had crossed out in the script some paragraph in which some scientist is talking about, well, the hyperbolic velocity of the, you know, whatever. I mean, a real scientist wouldn't talk about the hyperbolic trajectory on which this rock is uh, entering our space. They would just say, there's a goddamn rock coming toward us. <laughs> they didn't go with it, by the way, to my disappointment. Yeah, here's another uh, question for you, because the business that the SETI Institute is in, where I'm speaking to you from, is looking for life beyond Earth, you know, extraterrestrial life. And I think that if you, you know, just walk down the street and ask people, do you think there's extraterrestrial life? The majority, the overwhelming majority would agree, yes, there is. And if you ask them to say something more about it, they will tell you something that they probably saw in a movie or a TV show, right? So we've sort of tilled the ground. We've kind of laid the framework for this kind of, uh, you know, exploration, if you will. Absolutely. And again, I had like, I really enjoyed speaking to scientists over the course of this book because there were a few examples where I got to speak to astronomers and folks who had worked with SETI in the past. And, you know, you see guys like Carl Sagan who were very, very like talented at speaking about scientific elements in a pop cultural language, uh, oftentimes using the techniques and the mediums of documentary and, and filmmaking in order to con directly convey this through things like Cosmos. But even, you know, you've got films like Contact. Uh, you, you've got all sorts of different ways that you can reach the public. Uh, and if there's one thing that that films are good at and, and, and succeed at, it's, you know, reaching large audiences and, and doing so in a manner that uh, really encourages people to find this stuff compelling. Yeah, there are 400 billion stars out there just in our galaxy alone. If only one out of a million of those had planets, all right, and if just one out of a million of those had life, and if just one out of a million of those had intelligent life, there would be literally 
millions of civilizations out there. And yet, there's also this anti-science behavior you see in America that you don't see, for example, in Europe. I lived in Europe, and there was very little you know, belief in anti-science, certainly no belief in the idea that the government knows something really important to this subject, and, and they're keeping it from you, that kind of thing. But Americans love that. So are these two sides of the same coin? Well, I mean, I think that the American people have a unique relationship with their government. Uh, we, in general, I think the skepticism of large government apparatuses has absolutely been stoked through films, right? Like how many films is there a, a shadowy government operation? How many films do we see the military doing things untoward? I think, uh, you know, you, you see this a lot in post-Vietnam filmmaking. Um, you know, some of the book covers the relationship between the military and Hollywood. And, you know, you saw for kind of for a long era, there was a great deal of uh, deep reservoir skepticism between how the Pentagon handles things and how Hollywood tells stories. But yeah, no, you're you're 100% right. They're, they stoke skepticism in very unique ways. I think part of that is because movies are using either extraterrestrials or the government or, or things like that as a storytelling tool, right? Like you can see like aliens in the in the film Men in Black, right? Like that is that that's a movie about immigration. It's a story about like law enforcement. It's a story about, uh, you know, uh, the city of New York and, and the unique uh, melting pot that it is. And, and it uses aliens as a metaphor for that, right? Um, you can also look at a film uh, like Jordan Peele's Nope, uh, the one from about a year or two ago, which posits that aliens, you know, it, it's a much more of a biological thing. It's much more of a like, oh, this is a this is an apex predator that we haven't necessarily realized yet. And, and you know, the different kind of storytelling cues that we use for this kind of stuff, uh, I think it makes it just kind of it's tough to really pin it all on one thing or another. Let's talk about the uh, Jurassic Park effect. To begin with, you have a personal connection to that. That movie made you want to become a data scientist, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's very funny. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I had an act for math as a kid, and uh, typically within uh, pop culture and media, the representation of a guy who's good at math is a uh, very Professor Frank, uh, at least in the era in the '90s when I was growing up, and very, uh, you know, lab coats and all that kind of stuff. And then I saw Jurassic Park, and I saw Ian Malcolm, and I saw a representation of a mathematician who uses his, you know, talents and his abilities to attempt to make predictions about the future. Is proven broadly right, and shows, you know, a, a kind of a cool element of it. And obviously, you know, there's nuance in that performance of of kind of the pop mathematician element of that. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You know, it was just you can see representation have such a big effect on a lot of folks. One of the key reasons I ended up writing this book was because after a few years of reporting on pop culture, you just meet so many people who are like, yeah, no, you know, I got interested in becoming a doctor because I watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy growing up. Or, uh, you know, I was interested in becoming a journalist because I just really loved, you know, these movies about journalism. And, and you know, you hear that often enough and you kind of want to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, well, I think that paleontologist Steve Brusate We've interviewed him for this show, actually. He claimed that when the original movie debuted in 1993, it was, and I'm quoting here, probably the single most important thing that happened in paleontology in a really long time. Yeah, I mean, you got to think about it. Paleontology is is a very stable science, all things considered, right? Yeah, yeah like uh, when I was talking to Steve, he he kind of mentioned the fact that, listen, a lot of paleontological research uh, from a budgetary perspective kind of resembles a camping trip. <laughs> you basically hike out into the into the area that you're hoping to dig, you set up a tent, and then you spend the summer digging. And it, it's a fairly inexpensive field to participate in. And obviously, we've got significant technological improvements in the past couple of years. But nevertheless, like this was a field that, that from a technique perspective, had been pretty unchanged for a long time. And what injected a huge surge of money and interest and, and just demand into this, but Jurassic Park. You saw uh, museums invest into entirely new dinosaur wings. You saw docent positions get get you know in, started and, and filled through young paleontologists. You saw an increase in interest in becoming a paleontologist across Earth science departments in the United States. Colleges in geology departments would just open up paleontology classes to see them filled up in the in the ensuing uh, madness. I was able to pull uh, some some actual like you know paleontology society data uh, of, of you know researchers at the time uh, to kind of see contemporaneously what they were saying, and it's just like yeah, it's kind of a madhouse down here in the paleontology department. This is pretty new for us.
A movie's box office success depends on a compelling plot. But what if the survival of humanity did too? What would the elements of that narrative be? How to craft a story that endures through deep time and space next. This episode is Your Mind on Movies on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Here is a writing assignment that might stump even seasoned Hollywood screenwriters. In the early 1990s, the government assembled a team with the task of crafting a story so gripping, so compelling, that it would remain so 10,000 years into the future. Now, humans that far into the future might not speak or understand any languages we use today. In fact, Humans many centuries hence might be so different from your friends and neighbors that they might as well be extraterrestrials. So the story had a second challenge, that it should be literally universal. I was drawn to this because I was interested in the conceit of longevity, right? Like I, this is a book about stories and I wanna find out what makes some stories last and some not. And I thought that this study, the recommendations that they came out with were actually rather insightful when it came to the kind of things that make stories last a long time. Author Walt Hickey says that this universal story, which could be conveyed symbolically, would serve not only as a tale, but as a warning. Walt, in the early 1990s, the government assembled a team to devise a sign to mark nuclear waste. Nuclear waste that, you know, it was going to be dangerous for thousands of years and they needed to, to mark it. And they, you know, they can't just put something that says, don't dig here, right? To, to begin with, who knows in 10,000 years whether English will be actually a language anybody speaks anymore. But, but more than that, if you saw a sign like that, you would think, my God, see this old sign, don't dig here. There must be something valuable down here you know, get the back hose and let's dig here. Maybe you could describe the difficulty of actually doing this. Essentially, our entire legal system is built on the idea that if there's something dangerous, the person who put the dangerous thing there needs to warn people. And this applies to everyone from businesses to the government to nuclear waste repositories. And so in the early 90s, when they were, you know, envisioning the waste isolation pilot plant, which is outside of Carlsbad, New Mexico, uh, basically a long-term nuclear waste storage facility, uh, the EPA came along and was like, listen, like, you know, if you had a benzene storage facility, you would need to warn people that there's benzene there for as long as the benzene was dangerous. The same principle ought to apply to nuclear waste. And they were like, you know, well, even though the half-life of this stuff is is thousands of years and thousands of years and t- you know, hundreds of thousands of years in some cases, uh, we're just going to force you to, you know, warn people for 10,000 years. And they were just like, how the heck do we do that? Nobody's ever written anything in the history of the human species that lasted 10,000 years. The oldest stories that we have are maybe two, three, 4,000 years old. The conceit that we have a flood that a lot of people were affected by, that that, that a god came along and made better, that story, you're, you're probably talking 5,000 years the, at the latest, right? Nobody, there's no precedent for this kind of stuff. So they called in a lot of different talented researchers from all sorts of different walks of life, geologists, astronomers, uh, folks who specialize in material science, people who specialize in semiotics, uh, which I know is, is of interest to you. And they, they essentially asked them to kind of weigh in and, and, and make a recommendation for how they can possibly comply with these government requirements. You know, they, they could have just had a skull and crossbones, but for a lot of people that might be ambiguous if you're not brought up in the 20th or 19th centuries. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah. Go, go, please tell me, what else could a skull and crossbones mean? 
Yeah, well, well I, I, I don't know. It, it could be... They could mean pirates. Um, oh, it could mean a, this is a bone doctor here. I mean, I... It could also mean, and again, the, the origin of the skull and crossbones is an allusion to the resurrection, right? It's a, it's a cross set of bones in a, in a human skull that was an earlier alchemical symbol for, for resurrection. And so, like, throughout human history, skull and bones mean a whole bunch of different things, you know? Right. Okay. All right. Fair enough. But what did this team come up with? I mean, it was trying to speak to humans who are living on the planet 10,000 years from now, telling them, you know, don't dig here. Yeah, and it's it's such a compelling question because, you okay, let's think about the symbols that we do have. How do we currently tell people don't dig here? Well, we have the nuclear waste symbol, right? The problem is, is that the nuclear waste symbol is an invention. There's nothing about the nuclear waste symbol that indicates the ejection of a proton, right? Which is, you know, what nuclear decay is. Um, you know, you have a biohazard symbol. And, and you know, getting back to the, the cool semiotic stuff, like the, the point was raised that if you look at the biohazard symbol, it could be perceived as somebody digging downward, like claws clawing away at the ground, which is the opposite of what we kind of want people to convey. Well, Frank Drake, who used to work here, as an astronomer actually was on that uh, committee. And, and I asked him in the halls here, I said, well, Frank, what did you decide to do? And he said, yucky faces. Right, the, 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 the face of disgust uh, is, is perceived across all sorts of different cultures and societies as essentially meaning this is gross and bad and, and one ought not go here. And they were like, that's the kind of symbol that we want to look at. We don't want to look at an X just because X can mark the spot. We don't want to look at a skull and bones because that could mean pirates are here. We don't want to look at all sorts of different languages stuff because le like linguistic drift, you know, like English isn't like English from from the age of Chaucer is imperceptible, right? Like uh, Canterbury Tales, you know, one that opera with the Shorasota, the Jordan of March at Paris to the like we that is not a concept conceptible by most humans now, right? Even English speakers. Um, and so the idea is that like you have to have something that can articulate one ought not dig here. And the way that they did that was essentially they kind of made a comic strip. They were like, we're going to show, you know, people are very good at detecting the passage of time. We can look at some of the earliest cave art and, and it's sequential art. It tells a story in sequence. So we know that generally speaking, humans can understand the idea of passage of time through the sequential space. And we can show, you know, somebody digging and then them getting a thing and then a tree getting bigger behind them and then that thing killing them, right? Or making them sick. And that's one of the ways that we can do it. But the, in general, the, the arguments that they make about how best to frame this 10,000 year legend is very similar to, I think, how you can make very compelling work. You you have to have something to say. You can't hide what you have to say. It has a message. It, it it does so on many different levels. There's the obvious level. There's the subliminal level. You can say a thing in a lot of different ways across the music in a film, across the scenery of a film, across the dialogue in a film, much the same way you can layer a, a warning message. You can have a small chip on the ground. You can have a big monolith out there. You can have a vibe that you don't like. You can have a temperature. You can make it a material that conducts heat particularly well. Uh, it, it's It's got contextual elements so you can have different languages of it essentially describing what it is and you know it just really has something at its heart to say and it says it in a lot of different ways so 10,000 years from now people will still know that a yucky face means this is not going to be good for your health I mean, we know that that's like, you know, it's it's one of the situations where, you know, a smile can mean a lot of things in a lot of different cultures. It can mean baring one's teeth. Uh, it can mean all that kind of stuff. But Mr. Yuck, I mean, a yucky face, the, 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 the sentiment of disgust is one of the most basic things that we got. And so the idea that that is uh, one of the most effective symbols that we can come up with is... I don't know. I think that's kind of fun. I think it, it, it kind of gets at, again, how complicated some of these actual symbols can be right. and how, how cool it is that we actually get an opportunity to, to really think about what we're trying to say when we got to say it. I have to say I was impressed by the fact that they asked Frank Drake to participate in this. He's an astronomer and more specifically a SETI astronomer. But I suppose the reasoning was, well, if you're doing SETI, you also have thought about the question of how you represent information in a way that somebody who's, you know, the product of evolution on a completely different world might still understand. A hundred percent. And again, if you think about some of the other folks who they brought on to this experiment, that you know, they brought on a guy named Woody Sullivan. Uh, he's also an astronomer. He spent some time uh, doing early radio astronomy, and some of his earliest work was essentially tracking, you know, how far human radio waves have traveled throughout the universe and what the the the, the signature of Earth is from from a uh, electronic perspective expanding ever outward, right? Uh, obviously, you had you had Frank Drake 
you know, you also had, uh, you know, John Lomberg, who was one of the, uh, you know, l- longtime aide de camps of, of Carl Sagan and, and worked on the golden record that went along with the Voyager. Uh, and, and, you know, that's an opportunity to kind of contemplate what it is that we can truly try to say. Finally, Walt. So given the power of the media to influence us, not just temporarily, not just the one and a half hours we're sitting there in the dark, but over, over time, is there some way we can, uh, you know, utilize that for the benefit of humankind, or is that just interfering what is fundamentally a creative product? I mean, Roger Ebert called movies empathy machines, so, you know, this is, this is the empathy, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I think that there's kind of two sides of it, right? There's the production side, and then there's the consumption side. And I think that for most people, the consumption side is going to be what they're thinking about. How can how can you live a better life and, and consume, you know, things that are potentially, you know, just more enriching? And that is a really kind of exciting question. And, and I kind of come away with uh, the conclusion from the book that, you know, it's all about the diversity of what you consume. It doesn't all have to be so-called high art. You don't only have to watch opera and watch Oscar-nominated films. You should just kind of sample the buffet. You should um, read comics. You should watch movies from other countries. You should watch big action flicks. And, and you know, you should just kind of, you know, engage with all the different kinds of things that you can and just kind of think about what they're trying to say. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that Ebert quote that I love, which is that movies are empathy machines. And I think that, like, you know, that's a cool thing to say about movies. But like, if you're a person who enjoys sampling new technology, like that's a cool thing that you yourself can can use. You you have before you a whole bunch of empathy machines that you can take for a ride. You can, you can watch films from different countries. You can watch films from different eras. You can watch shows from all around the world. You can watch genres that you've never engaged with. And you can really just kind of sample what humanity has to offer when it comes to the storytelling potential. Uh, and, and I think that there's just a lot of opportunity there, you know, and if anything, it's made me think that the time that I spend watching new and interesting things or, or even watching old and, and fun things, you know, it, it's time well spent. It's time that I am engaging with the, this broader narrative that humanity has kind of constructed. Walt Hickey, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It was real great talking to you. I really enjoyed this. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Furrow, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. Walter Hickey is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, a data scientist, and the author of You Are What You Watch, How Movies and TV Affect Everything. This show would not be possible without the auteur talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and the editing skills of assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer, a.k.a. director of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that studies life in all its complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyake. This episode of Big Picture Science that examines the science of what we watch is Your Mind on Movies. And cut. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.